Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the ATA SLDs podcast. Today with you is Veronica Dimichelis and Ekaterina Howard, the SLD administrator. And we are very happy to uh, present our two guests. We have Yulia Zaplina and Alana Pick. Yulia Zaplina received an NMA in conference interpretation from ISIT, a graduate school of interpretation and translation in Paris in 2002. She then came back to New York and worked as a freelance conference interpreter based out of New York and Washington, D.C. until 2013, when she moved back to Paris with her family. Since 2012, Yulia has been teaching conference interpretation at the MCI, Master in Conference Interpretation Program at Glendon College, York University in Toronto, Canada. Recently, she also started teaching conference interpretation at ISIT, one of Paris's two uh, interpretation schools. Alana Pick graduated from the Tbilisi Foreign Languages Teachers Training Institute and Moscow State University School of Journalism. She has a candidate of pedagogical sciences degree from the USSR Academy of Pedagogical Sciences. She's based in New York and currently teaches court interpreting at the MCI program at Glendon College, Toronto, Canada. Also taught at the New York University School of Continuing and Professional Studies. She is an ATA certified English into Russian translator, a grader, and Gordon-approved interpreter. Alana and Yulia met at one of the ATA conferences some 15 years ago, and they have a lot to share about this profession. So welcome, Yulia and Alana. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I will start with the first question. Why do you teach? If you're both already practiced interpreters, what has led you to decide to teach into the mix? Uh, well, this is Alana. I started teaching way before I started working as an interpreter and translator. I've been doing it for the last 50 years, I guess. I started as a music teacher. I taught piano, then taught English at a specialized English language school in Moscow, and I realized that if I did not practice as an interpreter and, uh, or translator, I would not be able to teach a living language. It happened so that pretty often I was lucky that way. In my school and class, I had kids of diplomats who lived in English-speaking countries, and frankly, they spoke better colloquial English than I did, much better, I would say. So I learned from them. I was very open to it. Uh, that, I believe, was my first realization of an inherent connection between doing something, learning as you go, and teaching it. And since our profession is, in fact, a lifelong commitment to learning living languages, in all their beauty, their everyday changing vocabulary, I keep teaching, learning, and working as an interpreter and translator from time to time. Uh, very often, my current students have a solid base, solid knowledge of both English and Russian languages. It's not uncommon for them to have degrees in languages and or teaching. Last year, for instance, we had a student, both Yuli and I, had a student with at least 10 years of simultaneous interpreting experience. I usually tell my students that my goal is to see them competing with me for the same jobs. And if or when they win, I'll be very proud. For me, it will feel like something close to, you know, this mission accomplished statement. And I believe one of the famous yogis said it best, and I quote, if you want to learn something, read about it. If you want to understand something, 
write about it. But if you want to master something, teach it. And I guess that's why I'm teaching court interpreting. I do much more court interpreting jobs than, let us say, conference, and I hardly do any translation. So I guess that, that answers your question. Thank you for the question. Uh, it's an excellent question. I often ask myself, oh, why do I need to add this extra load? Because teaching clearly takes a lot of time and I'm quite busy working as an interpreter. And we're very lucky in our profession is that um, there's never a dull moment. Uh, different clients, different subjects, we always have to learn about new subject matters. There's always something new to learn, to discover. But after I was doing this for about 10 years, uh, I felt the need for something new. Um, on the one hand, we are freelance interpreters, and so we're all independent practitioners. So that means that we practice independently and we rarely, if at all, if ever get feedback from clients or colleagues. Uh, so in that way, we're very different from professionals in other fields, from those people who work for large organizations, who receive regular assessments from their peers and their higher-ups. So after about 10 years, I felt the need to sort of take a step back and reflect on what I learned in the profession, about the profession, uh, to reflect on what I learned about the practice of interpretation. Um, I also became keenly aware that in the United States, at least, uh, in a conference interpretation, um, we have a large number, um, the, the profession itself is unregulated and unlicensed. And so we have a large number of people who work as interpreters, but who fell into it by chance. They never received proper training and so sometimes they do not have the skills to execute at the level required of professional conference interpreters. And so as this was happening in my professional life, as serendipity would have it, uh, I was considering how it could contribute towards changing the situation. And at about that time, I was offered a teaching contract at Glennon College in New York University. So that was about five years ago, and I have now been teaching for five years, and I find it very rewarding. And I also find it to be very complementary uh, to my practice as a conference interpreter, uh, because it gives me an opportunity to continuously reflect on my own practice and to offer students real-life solutions to interpretation challenges. The thing is that teaching interpretation is very different from teaching other subjects, or at least that's what I think. Not that I'm an experienced teacher in other subjects, um, not at all, but it seems to me that in teaching interpretation, uh, we don't lecture. Um, it's not a professor-student scenario where professor lectures and students just take notes. Teaching interpretation requires building a master-apprentice relationship. It is a very delicate process, and my goal is not to necessarily transmit knowledge. It is to help a young colleague um, develop the skill set and the character that would allow him or her to become a successful interpreter. So learning interpretation requires figuring out a new way of thinking and a new way of processing information. We're all very different. We all think differently. So helping someone else to develop new thinking patterns requires a great deal of both patience and creativity because no two students are the same. 
And so it is this creative aspect and the relationship um, that I build with my students that I appreciate the most. And it is also very, very rewarding to see my students succeed and become respected professionals in the field. Oh, I'd love to follow up if I may. Yulia, thank you for mentioning mentorship uh, as one of those people who stumbled into profession from um, a different field. It seems like this is one of the biggest missing pieces, at least for me. Ilana and Yulia, a question for you. Uh, in, when you teach, it sounds like you build stronger relationships with the students and it sounds like you stay in touch after that. Uh, would you say that this is different from uh, the translation field as a whole, or is it just something that is an advantage of having a formal education in the field? Um, allow me to, to follow up. I, I can't really comment on the translation field because I was never trained as a translator. Uh, so I don't know how the process of teaching someone to become a translator unfolds. I do know, though, that in conference interpretation programs, the class size is typically quite small. It is not uncommon uh, for me to only have two students in my classroom. So inevitably, that creates a very strong bond um, between the teacher and the student. I remember when I was a student at Ezit 15 years ago, uh, there were three of us in the first year and two of us in the second year. And the relationship with, I'm, I'm, I'm talking specifically about my language stream. So that would be with Russian, English, and French. In other languages between French, English, and say Spanish, uh, the class size was slightly bigger. There, there were maybe five or seven students, but it is still a very small number of students per teacher. So the student to teacher ratio uh, is, really small compared to most other fields that you can go to university to study. So it does lead inevitably to forming a very strong bond with a student and keeping that relationship ongoing because we really look at our students as our future colleagues. I think that's, that's a really foundational piece to learning and to being, being successful at teaching someone to become an interpreter. I don't know if Alana would like to add something to that. Well, uh, when I was, uh, well, that was last century, long ago, we were like 15 of us in a group. And um, first year, second year, I believe, fewer in the third and fourth years. But uh, it was very difficult, and a lot needed to be done after we uh, graduated from the uh, teacher's training uh, program. But my program was focused on actually teaching and the languages, not just languages. So I never had any formal education in, or any proper education, I would say, in uh, translation or interpretation. So it was hard to pave my way into both professions. And I would call them different professions, translation and interpreting. Uh, it's actually, it's a total, uh, it's a totally different uh, profession, I would say. And legal interpreting being a sub-profession, if I may put it this way. 
Thank you so much for sharing this, Amana and Yulia. I um, have a pleasure of teaching some translation courses at Houston Community College, and I couldn't agree more with what you said. It's definitely a very different approach to teaching translation versus interpreting. And it was very interesting to listen to your um, your opinions on, on the bond between the students and the teacher. Um, could you please tell us more about where you currently teach um, as instructors, teachers? Why did you choose the Glendon program? Uh, sure. I teach at uh, an interpretation school in Paris and at the MCI in Toronto, MCI being the Masters of Conference Interpretation program. And the Glendon program is quite unique. Uh, it is unique because in the first year, uh, it offers three tracks, healthcare, legal, and conference interpreting. And I think that for students, uh, this is a great advantage compared to other programs, because at the end of year one, if students, for whatever reason, uh, is not able to continue into year two, having completed all coursework in year one, uh, those students, they haven't wasted a year, they still obtain a diploma, and they can go ahead and work as interpreters in healthcare and legal settings. And the second year, in then fully dedicated to conference interpretation. Uh, another advantage for students, I think, is that the first year takes place online and year two is filled on campus. And I have to say that with today's technologies, uh, I was first very skeptical, but really I'm able to do most things that I would like to do with my students in this online format. And so because the first year is online, it allows students from all over, all over the world to participate. It draws students from various countries and creates a very diverse student body. Uh, some students come into the program straight after receiving their bachelor's degrees. Others are midlife career changers. And then we have a significant proportion of students who have experience as, work, as conference interpreters. There comes a moment when they realize that in order to continue to grow professionally and for their career growth, so they need to up their game. And so they chose to stop working for a year or two in order to receive professional training and a university diploma and then return to the marketplace uh, with a degree. And the program is quite rigorous. In fact, our students often complain that there is just too much work that they don't have time left for anything else. And that is true, it is a full-time program, but that's the price to pay for doing three tracks simultaneously. So healthcare, legal, and conference in the first year. Another aspect of the Glenn program that I really appreciate is collaboration and interaction with colleagues. Every year, um, the MCI holds a T-Cube, which is training for trainers by trainers. All instructors in the program have to be working interpreters. That's a requirement. So it is really helpful for me personally to be able to learn from others, to be able to learn from my colleagues, who many of them who have much more experience teaching than I do, and exchange ideas about how to teach, about how to deal with a particular situation, about how to help a particular student to overcome um, whatever it is that is not allowing the student to progress. And I take every opportunity to learn from my colleagues, and I think that is a very important aspect of the program for me personally. Let me 
jump in. Uh, currently, I teach a 36-hour online legal interpreting course at the uh, same program. And uh, actually, Yulia introduced me to this program three years ago. So I have been teaching there for three years. And uh, I guess here is a proper uh, moment to give a shout out to say kudos to the ATA that affords us an opportunity to meet, to get together, to network, uh, to, uh, to establish some friendships and professional relationship, and that helps us a lot. So thank you, ATA. I teach a language-specific English interaction legal or court interpreting class, and in parallel with my language-specific class, a colleague who is also a court interpreter, she teaches a non-language-specific class. The purpose of the course is to help students develop the knowledge, the skills, sight translation, consecutive, simultaneous interpretation, and techniques required for interpreting in legal settings, basically in court, at court hearings, be it criminal court, family court, immigration court, bankruptcy court, and on and on, and in quasi-legal settings such as jails, detention centers, legal service agencies, child protective agencies, and just to name a few. We also want our students to have a clear understanding of the judicial systems in Canada and their respective countries. If we have students from Russia, so it would be Russia. If we have students from Kazakhstan, Ukraine, it would be respectively uh, Ukrainian and, uh, or Kazakh uh, system. We read and discuss articles from USC, Canada Criminal Code, Russian Federation Criminal Code, U.S. Constitution. We discuss requirements to become a court interpreter and nowadays, at least here in New York, one has to take an exam, rather three exams, uh, in consecutive, simultaneous, and site translation, since there is no uh, federal certification in our pair of languages. Uh, even uh, some agencies now started, invite, started inviting us to come in for an interview, uh, though I believe those who have a certificate in court interpreting are not required to take any exams and can be put on core interpreter's roster. We also uh, help our students understand various types of proceedings, study various types of proceedings and their challenges, be able to define and use the modes of interpretation, again, consecutive, simultaneous, side translation, those that are used in the courtroom, as well as skills needed in each of these modes, including reading and listening comprehension, note-taking, we work on approaches and techniques to increase memory span and accurate memory retrieval, some breathing techniques, uh, stress busting techniques, as much as we, uh, you know, have time for that. In a language-specific class, we focus on crimes more commonly heard in the courts. Today, it's not just a garden variety of car accidents and sleep or trip and fall accidents. More and more often, we work such cases as drug possession, violent crimes cases, immigrant application cases at USCIS and immigration courts, fraud cases, lots of fraud cases recently, be it wire fraud, mail fraud, internet fraud, Medicaid fraud, Medicare fraud, cybersecurity, internet system vulnerabilities. All those are pretty, you know, just difficult cases and they require a lot of knowledge and understanding of the uh, judicial systems and the proceeding itself. 
To prepare for such cases, one needs to know what to expect, where to look for information and resources, what terminology knowledge is a must. And the internet, especially YouTube, is a treasure trove of live recordings of arraignments, arrests, court hearings, and proceedings, including voir defense and prosecution opening statements, you name it. And um, in our class structure, we use this material alongside with terminology lists, uh, I would say from 50 to 80 uh, words and expressions for each topic. We use police blotters, Russian Federation Investigative Committee's Chronicle. They have it both in English and Russian, which is very helpful. Parallel texts are very useful in teaching court uh, legal translation and uh, legal interpreting. We use role plays, dialogues, improvisation on a given subject matter, etc. I don't want to bore you with all these details, but it's just a gist of what we try to teach our students to make them able to compete and to find their niche in the marketplace. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. Not boring at all. This is fascinating. It makes me feel like Good. we need a separate podcast just about the ways to uh, improve your skills as an interpreter. Uh, yeah, that will be very interesting, and I very much welcome, uh, I believe, uh, Jennifer Gornsey came up with an idea of a roundtable that would be very useful, and I want to say that your practice group, which I had a chance to participate for one year, um, is a great idea. It's a very good tool, a very good way to improve and to build on uh, the skills and to build on, to become a better, actually to become better interpreters. So that's good. Anything that we can do to become better and to uphold our professional standards is definitely very good and very useful. And Thank because you. we are independent practitioners, it takes a little bit more energy and creativity on it. As nothing is offered to us in this little platter. We have to create those groups, we have to create those training opportunities for ourselves. Yes, this is very true. Yeah. So, um, going back to the topic of professional development and having strong professional foundations, uh, there still are a lot of people, I believe, both in translation and in interpreting, who are self-taught and self-starters. What would you say to people like that who are considering a program like the one you teach in? I would completely agree with you that we have many colleagues who are excellent interpreters and who never received any professional training and they were able to develop their skills on the job over the course of the years. But the times have changed. Uh, the reality is that today someone who's coming into the market, a young person who would like to become an interpreter, doesn't have the luxury of learning on the job, of taking years to hone his or her skills. They have to be good at the first contract. Otherwise, they simply will not survive as interpreters because clients' expectations have changed. When the profession began, it was at the Nuremberg trial, the pioneers in the profession came from many backgrounds, and of course they had no professional training. But since then, things have evolved. Conferences became more difficult, more technical. Clients' expectations 
uh, have gone up significantly. Today, they expect the interpreters to be near perfect. When, for example, uh, surveys were conducted among users of interpretation services, asking the users to list certain qualities and in interpreters that they appreciated the most, clients listed the quality of their voice, of the interpreter's voice, as number one. Because the idea that an interpreter may not be accurate, for example, does, is not, doesn't even come into consideration. It's just treated as a given. Whereas we know how difficult it is to be accurate, to provide accurate and faithful interpretation in every moment. And we know that it requires training because nowadays speakers just go at 300 miles an hour and they wouldn't stop for you and wait for the interpreter to figure out how to get out of this complex sentence. So because the market has changed, because the nature of the work has changed, I think it is really important for interpreters who are coming into the market today to receive professional training because our graduates must be able to produce confident professional interpretation of their first contract. And this is the criterion by which we judge their readiness at the end of year two. So if the exam jury does not consider that a student meets this requirement of professional interpretation, then we advise the student to take more time to prepare and to present again for the exam. As jury members, we have an obligation to ensure that students who leave Glendon with a diploma in hand are fully ready um, to meet every challenge. Our students have to know how to prepare for a conference, how to deal with very fast speakers, how to deal with technical subjects, how to deal with impossible accents, with disorganized speakers, and how despite all these challenges still deliver a quality interpretation product for the listeners. In addition to that, our students are trained in what is necessary for them to do a good job. So in other words, what conditions have to be in place in order to provide quality interpretation in terms of technical requirements for interpretation equipment, for example, manning strength, working hours. Our students know that um, if an interpreter is working alone in a booth for three hours, then inevitably the quality will go down. And so it is very important, again, for a person coming into the market to know what kind of contracts to accept and what kind of contracts uh, not to accept because it would not be possible to provide a quality interpretation under those conditions. And last but not least, technology is changing. The world is changing very quickly. And we give our students the tools to be able to uh, comfortably use new technologies that are used, for example, for remote interpretation. Uh, well, I couldn't agree more being one of those old timers, you know, who learned on the job and had to put a lot of time, hours, effort and energy into it. Thank God I had a good foundation. Having attended good schools myself, I wouldn't have been able to do it without this foundation. And I'm internally grateful to my professors, to my colleagues, to my friends, to uh, team uh, members, to my booth partners who offer constructive feedback and help. Uh, and uh, this is a very important component uh, of a professional growth.
Most of us, as far as I know, at least from my esteemed colleagues, was Russian as our A and English as our B language. We work in court and uh, we work as court and medical interpreters. I mean, court, uh, legal settings, medical settings. And in my experience, legal interpreting, and I mentioned it before, and medical is very close to it, is by far the most challenging sub-profession. I do call it that. I don't know whether you ladies agree with me or not. First and foremost, it is bidirectional. You keep switching between languages, not just languages, but very different registers of both languages, from pretty predictable, structured, well-scripted legal English, some call it mumbo-jumbo, to a totally unpredictable layman's and occasionally vulgar Russian, uh, if we work in English to English-Russian, Russian-English pair of languages, with all its dialects, accents, and jargons. You also have to develop stamina, since court interpreters work for eight or uh, more hours nonstop during depositions. It's a totally unregulated area. In court, we have to stand before judge, jury, and the gallery for three or three and a half hours alternating with our partner, hearing occasional non-solicited feedback from the gallery, and God forbid you have a Russian-speaking attorney. Oh, gosh, it adds, you know, it all adds up. And uh, these can come with a lot of emotional stress. So I do agree with you, Leah. Times have changed. And to be a good professional court interpreter, to be able to make a decent living, one needs to have a solid basis. And I believe we have already made this point early in the conversation, in this discussion, I mean. Uh, one has to have an ability to build on it, to know how to do it, to have resources to do it. And again, it's a lifelong commitment to learning and adapting to the new world around us. Uh, well, I better stop. Looks like I'm shooting myself in the foot, you know, scaring our listeners off. Something I wouldn't want to do. Otherwise, uh, uh, you know, I would like to see more and more uh, colleagues, my young colleagues, develop better skills, acquire better knowledge, better understanding of this profession, legal interpreting, and uh, as a grader, sometimes uh, I see, and that's in translation, I see a lot of very poor Russian and uh, Russian with uh, anglicisms, with some, some absolutely inappropriate uh, with respect to good Russian language written and spoken uh, expressions, words borrowed from the English, American English, and this is not acceptable, and I would really like to advocate for good education, professional education, professional basis, and uh, anything and everything that we uh, can within the ATA uh, to uh, promote higher standards in our profession. Thank you so much for this. Um, I really admire your passion for this profession, and I don't think you're, um, you bore our listeners at all. Uh, I'm pretty sure this would deserve a follow-up episode um, just on the uh, details of how to uh, become better as a professional, both in translation and interpreting. Um, however, one often comes across um, some less optimistic articles and statements from people regarding the future of this profession, both translation and interpreting. What is your take on the future? Is there any future in interpreting as a profession? Is there money in it? 
Oh, I don't know. Maybe I should say that there isn't any so that I'm the only one who stays in the profession, right? Um, no, let me get my crystal ball. I don't know what future holds. I think that automation threatens many professions. And often I hear people talk about interpretation as being the next in line to be automated. Honestly, I don't see it happening. I don't think interpretation is going to be among those professions which is going to be automated anytime soon. It is true that there are some conflicting trends. On the one hand, is the prevalence of global English. And so for some languages, the need for conference interpretation has been going down over the past few years. That is definitely true. Uh, that's on the other hand. Um, it's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have new technologies that make remote interpretation possible. It makes it easier to hire interpreters, and that increases demand for interpretation services. I think as interpreters, we shouldn't be afraid of new technologies. We should embrace them. We should be ready to use them. And I'm convinced that in conference interpretation, as in many other professions, the future belongs to those who do it best. And I think there's another sign that quality pays. In the Glenn program, uh, the program has been in existence for just over five years. And our graduates, nonetheless, have already successfully penetrated the institutional market. Uh, five of our graduates work for the Government of Canada. Um, two became staff interpreters at the ICAO, um, which is uh, an agency of the United Nations. Uh, one is a staff interpreter with the International Red Cross. Many others work quite successfully as freelancers. So I think the very fact that yesterday's graduates are able to compete successfully, take competitive examinations, become staff interpreters with government agencies in the United Nations, I think that by itself shows that there's an unmet need um, in high quality conference interpreters. Well, no crystal ball here, I should admit, but let me give you some more recent uh, examples, widely posted, reposted all over professional blogs and websites and in the media. Uh, one is as follows, a man from Mexico was pulled over on the highway in Kansas and was suspected uh, of carrying drugs. With the help of Google Translate, the Kansas Highway Trooper asked the man in Spanish, Obviously, the man was uh, had limited English proficiency, and so that's why the trooper had to use Google. So he asked him if he can search his car. The suspect later said that he didn't understand the request when he responded yes. The question the court was trying to answer was whether Google Translate uh, was a reliable enough interpreter to justify sending a man to prison. And the answer was, no surprise here, resound resounding no. One other example, Law Gazette from the United Kingdom, uh, and there was an article, replacing interpreters with technology will lead to miscarriages of justice. And I quote, Lord Bernard of Meldon, Lord Chief Justice, was invited to meet the courtroom interpreters, and he predicted they would be out of job within a few years as a result of advances in technology. He said he had little doubt, quote, uh, that high-quality simultaneous translation, it's an interesting choice of words, right? Simultaneous translation will be available and will see the end of interpreters. However, the Institute of Translation and Interpreting says this prediction is based on unproven assumptions. 
In a letter to Lord Burnett, both the Institute Chair and the Institute's Executive said that technologies that underlie automatic simultaneous interpreting, such as speed recognition, are a long way from being perfect. Even the most highly developed, that's the quote, even the most highly developed machine translation systems can and do commit errors at a rate that would be unacceptable for the judicial process. To allow such systems loose on the justice system in their current state and without significant time in testing, development, and trialing would lead to miscarriages of justice, increased stakes taxpayer expense, and the inability of those with limited English proficiency to participate in the justice system. This runs counter to current human rights law and would lead to irreparable damage to the British justice system. Well, end of quote. So I think we are good, not for the time being, but provided we are able to learn how to adapt to the technological progress, we can rest assured that our skills and our talents will be in demand. Thank you so much. Any uh, follow-up questions from you, Katya? No, but I'm very glad to learn that the profession is not doomed just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Yulia and Alana. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on our podcast. Thank you for having us. Uh, yeah, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, uh, we will include links to uh, Ivana's and Yulia's um, contact information in our show notes. We'd also like to remind you that our podcast is available um, on iTunes and Google Play, um, as well as the SoundCloud uh, website. And the address for that is soundcloud.com ATASLD. Mm -hmm.